0: book. you have a Bible, why don't you turn to the book of Jonah. We're going to look at chapter 1 and 2, verse by verse. We have looked at an introduction to the um, book of Jonah, which has prepared us to better understand the book in its entirety. It's always a good way to go through it, get um, key words, key passages, an overview, some historical background, cultural background. And um, in this way, you get a little outline of the book also, and you can um, better track it as you go along. Now, the book stands on its own merit. It's a literal historical book, as we said. It's confirmed by Jesus. He pointed to Jonah, not only as a, uh, um, the type of his uh, three days for the resurrection, but also the fact that he literally was in the belly of the fish and that he even made a reference to the preaching of Jonah, a greater than Jonah is here. When we get to chapter 3, we'll look at that as he preached uh, uh, repentance to the Assyrians, um, not wholeheartedly, as we'll see. But um, as we come to chapter 1 and 2, um, we begin with chapter 1 where the prophet is rebelling against God. Verse 1 through 3, we have the commission and disobedience of the prophet. He says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me." Um, God is so good that he's always sending prophets, be it to his own people. Even he has Jeremiah, Isaiah send warning to the Gentile world also. And um, the revelation of God here to Jonah is divine revelation. Um, it wasn't the man themselves that sent themselves. It wasn't men who thought they were religious better than others. But they were men of uh, Israel, <coughs> but of common stock most of the time prophets because they were um, calling even the Levitical priesthood back from the corruption, the kings from the corruption, and the people. And so that was the, the major um, duty, if you will, of the prophet, to call back the people of God to God. And um, uh, certainly these men um, had no idea sometimes what they were speaking about or who they were referring to, Peter tells us, and then another time they did. Now, they first uh, were the mouthpiece of God to call the people to repent. And then secondly, at times, they would predict future things. So the primary function of a prophet is to speak forth, be the mouthpiece of God for repentance. And um, here we get um, his, um, his lineage, Amatai, which means truth, his family uh, line here of integrity and truth. And um, this is confirmed as well as uh, the location of his home as we cross-reference this with um, 2 Kings 14.12, as we may mention. And there, Jonah is used as the prophet of God to declare to Jeroboam II that God was going to restore uh, the land of the north to Israel um, as Assyria would make its insurgents into the northern part and destroy territory and conquer it and also take people captives. And that, as we pointed out, is probably one of the reasons why Jonah hated the Assyrians, but um, God was going to restore it. And he is from Gethsefer, which means wine press of digging. And that's in the area there of uh, Nazareth and um, certainly the area of Canaan. And remember the prophets or the Pharisees told uh, regarding the prophets of Jesus that there no prophet came from there in John 752. But the prophet did come from there. Um, Jonah was from that region, and so um, only twice is his name uh, in terms of that he was a prophet and his identity uh, with Israel, both there in Kings and here in in Jonah. So uh, by those two factors, you you must accept that Jonah was a literal person. You cannot accept Jeroboam the second and reject uh, Jonah; and they both go together. In the same time, 765 B.C., historically. And so, um, notice that here in verse 2, the destination of God, uh, as he sets it for Jonah, is, it's a command. It's not a suggestion. Arise and go. Um, sometimes uh, people read the word of God and they think they're not suggestions and it'd be nice to live that way. But we have to live in reality. No, God enables us to live and to do and to obey what God commands us. God never uh, tells you anything that he doesn't equip you for. If you remember, Jesus often told people who could do nothing for themselves to do things that were impossible to obey, such as the man with the withered hand, such as the blind man to go wash and see. So it was the Lord who empowered them and enabled them once he gave that command. And so here, likewise, always these people were equipped, the prophets, uh, with the message, with the anointing, even at times protection, but not always. And so the Great Commission to us in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, we have a command to minister the gospel. Uh, men and women throughout history have lost their lives, lost their jobs, lost their families, lost all their money, everything, because they have been witnesses of Jesus Christ. And uh, that's easily recorded in, in, in many places in history. And so here, at Nineveh, that great city, about 500 miles northeast, uh, 14 times the word here um, is, is portrayed great, uh, six times it's for major importance of the city or leaders or nobles, and then eight times it's used for the extent or the size of the city. So the context will dictate which one it's talking about. Um, remember that Nineveh was founded by Nimrod in Genesis 10, 11. And um, it was, had the city proper and four cities at the extent of it, kind of a trapezoid. Um, there was an, inner, an outer wall 60 miles around, 100 feet high, wide enough for three chariots to drive across it. Um, as impressive as Babylon when we looked into that city also, just Impressive. Uh, 200 towers uh, to protect the city. Uh, It was a well-fortified city with the mountains and the rivers and everything else. And the city had a population, we're told, in in, uh, chapter 4 later on, I believe, verse 11, of 120,000 infants that couldn't tell their left from the right hand. So the population, conservatively, would be a million plus, maybe even a million and a half or two. Um, Pretty large population. And um, it would take three days to cross the city. When we get to chapter 3, verse 3, we'll see that indication. Now, Jonah was to cry out against the wickedness. Um, they were uh, very wicked in terms of their fertility cults, uh, sacrifice of children to Molech, the cruelty and warfare as they would just tear people apart, skin them alive, bury them up to their neck. They would tear out their tongue. They would lead them away with hooks. I mean, you name it. Entire cities would commit mass suicide. They wouldn't even even, even consider being taken captive by the Assyrians. That's how. And they traveled with their families, different from other um, uh, nationalities. They, they traveled with their families. They were just like nomadic roaming savages. Um, it was amazing. And um, here this word wickedness um, appears nine times. Um, seven times it means uh, trouble or disagreeable, unpleasant synonymous with disaster and misery, and two times for evil in chapter 3, eight and 3.10. And so here again, the minute that Jonah hears this, he, he, he's not all for it. So in verse 3, it says, But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship and, um, going to Tarshish. So he paid the fair, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish for the, from the presence of the Lord. So we've talked about this, the rebellion of him against God. Um, but Jonah, the contrast of his commission and disobedience, completely not having anything to do with this, Tarshish, they're 2,000 miles west, believing um, it's to be Tarsus, uh, the Phoenician colony of, in Spain, that uh, near the Strait of Gibraltar, and that was considered the ends of the, of the earth. And so uh, Jonah was not believing he could really run from God's presence, but the fact that he was just running away from his commission, he was not going to go there at all. Um, he just hated the Ninevites, as we said. And so he went down, and he paid his own fare. And when you pay your own fare, it always costs you. You find as mention he went down in verse 3 and in verse 5 in um, the city of Joppa in the Mediterranean. Some of you have been with us to Israel. Um, We go by there. And uh, Solomon used that as a port to float down the timber up from Hiram, up in Syria, uh, from from, from, um, Lebanon down, for the building of the temple. And it's also the place where uh, the Lord Jesus uh, told Peter to go to the house of Cornelius. He was at Joppa at that time. He was uh, up, and he went up to pray before eating, and uh, he got a little hungry, got a vision of all manner, creeping thing, and the Lord says, kill and eat, and Peter says, now so, Lord, and Jesus says, don't you ever call anything common that I have cleansed. And he told him to go, not doubting anything with the men that came, and he sent them to the house of Cornelius, and he preached the gospel, and God demonstrated that the Gentiles were saved the very same way, by grace through faith. Interesting, both people that hated the Jews We're told to go to the um, to the hated the Gentiles. We're told to go to the Gentiles from the very same place, here. Now, in verse four to fourteen, we have the tempestuous storm and the mariners uh, and Jonah here. And uh, in verse four, it says, "But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up." So again, God is, um, is he's not happy with this prophet. He's, he's pursuing his prophet here. This is a supernatural storm. The word but, but marks the sharp disapproval of God um, to what the prophet is doing. Even as he sent Nathan uh, to David, his sharp disapproval of his cover-up of the sin with Bathsheba in the murder of Uriah. Uh, and there's many other instances in the scriptures that tell us and show us that. Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead. Um, as they lied that they gave everything to God. Now God didn't require everything from them. God didn't want anything from them. But they said that they did give everything. So they lied to the Holy Spirit and God struck them dead. And so we have many accounts like that in scripture. And um, he, he sent out, he hurled this wind. So it's a supernatural storm. God is pursuing the prophet who's being disobedient. Now, he's our father, and Hebrews tells us that no chastening is pleasant for the time. But even as we submitted to our earthly father, so we should submit to our heavenly father. Because it's evidence that we are children of God. And God um, will not let us get away with things. He will pursue us, but he will not force us. Just as you as a parent cannot force your child, you can hold him accountable. You can do things to try to make him turn. You can... Confront him, you can pray for him, you can even stop him physically to an extent. But come push comes to shove, if that child wants to be rebelled when he is already an adult or whatever it may be, as he's a teen, there's really nothing you can do as a parent. But you do hold them accountable and responsible as long as they're living in your home and they are underage. Once they are of age and they make their own way, you warn them, you love them, you, you, you pray for them but uh, you're not responsible for their lifestyle. But you certainly don't want to be complicit to it or um, not confronting them when they are not living for the Lord. Uh, it, it should be um, a, a brokenhearted condition when children are not walking with God. and uh, But also a joyous occasion knowing that God is faithful. And so as God does His part, we do our own. And so in verse 5, um, we have the response of the sailor mariners here. And then the mariners were afraid and were, um, every man cried out to his God and they threw the cargo that was on the ship into the sea and lightened the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and had laid down and he was asleep. So Jonah here, um, he's just, he's not feeling guilty or nothing. The sailors became afraid. These guys were seasoned sailors. They, they, they'd been in storms before, but they understood the great danger. So they cried out to their gods. And again, these are local gods. There's the gods of the valleys, gods of the mountains, the gods of the seas. Dagon was one of the gods of the sea. And, um, and, and that's where he was supposed to go, to Assyria. And so they started throwing the cargo overboard, certainly the light in the ship. And yet Jonah's fast asleep and... he. You know, he, he's, just, he's just not going to Nineveh, and, and he has no problem with it. I mean, as we go on, he's even going to despair of life, throw me overboard. I mean, he doesn't care. He's just not going to go. But notice in verse 6, So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And so the captain sought help from Jonah. Now, you know things are going bad when the captain of the ship knocks on your cabin and asks for help. Um, He was both concerned and astonished that Jonah would be sleeping. So he rebukes him. What do you mean, sleeper? Everybody's going crazy on the top deck. He's on the lower deck just snoring. And so he commanded Jonah to arise and to call on his God that perhaps he might be the one to deliver them because their gods had not delivered them at this point. It's the same command that God gave to Jonah in chapter 1, verse 1, arise. It's interesting how sometimes when Christians are disobedient, God will even use non-believers to rebuke the non-believers. To remind them of the rebellion. He pleaded with Jonah to call on his God. And so in verse 7. And they said to one another. Come let us cast lots. That we may know for what cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots. And the lot fell on Jonah. Oops. <laughs> they were casting lots to find out the culprit. The pagans cast lots to determine their fate or their guidance. God here intervenes and directs the lot, as Proverbs 16.33 tells us. Lots was the way that the Old Testament um, people were directed many times. And yet, Jesus did the same thing through lots in the day of Pentecost, when Matthias was chosen to take the place of Judas Iscariot. And um, we've made reference to this many times, and I do so because so many people try to put Paul as the uh, twelve apostle in in place of Judas, and he's not because he didn't meet the two requirements, to see Jesus from the baptism of John and his, and to see him resurrected. Now, Paul did see Jesus resurrected, but not from the baptism. So he doesn't meet the requirement and Paul never claimed to be the 12. In a couple of chapters from chapter 2, it says in the 12 being present. And Paul doesn't get saved till chapter 9 of the book of Acts. So um, God used lots. When somebody tells you that in Acts 2 that it was a mistake, uh, it's absolutely unbiblical. Now... In verse 8 and 9, the sailors pleaded with Jonah to answer some questions. So then they said to him, Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble come upon us? What is your occupation, and where do you come from, and what is your country, and of what people are you? Jonah. He has no problem handing out information. In fact, he told him he was fleeing from the Lord when he got on board. We're going to find that out as we move along. It's interesting. Have you have you ever uh, recognized one thing that when Christians are rebellious and they're backslidden, they have no problem telling you they are. It's almost brashness. It's scary. And so he said to them, "I'm a Hebrew." their ears went up right away they knew about the Hebrews they knew the Israelites and I feared the Lord the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land wow who had caused the trouble Jonah the history of Israel the exodus the conquest of the land King David Saul I mean Solomon were very well known in verse 10, these men were exceedingly afraid hearing this and said to him, Why? Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told him. And so the response of the sailors to become more afraid in view of the answer. Why have you done this? Again, the unbeliever has a higher expectation of the believer and is shocked when he sees him fail. I've I've known people who claim to be Christians and they're in the wrong place and they very brashly tell the person, Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. They start witnessing and and the person looks around and says, What are you doing in this place if you're a Christian? Now, in spite of that, God may use that and that person may come to the Lord. But God rebukes him through the non-believer. Or somebody say, well, I thought you say you're a Christian. Well, I am. Well, why are you telling me that joke? Why are you talking the way you're talking? Wow. You get rebuked. He feared the Lord Yahweh, the God of heaven, creator of sea and land. But see, no, he doesn't say my God or anything. Right now he's at odds with God. So here in verse 10, they're shocked. Verse 11, the sailors in Jonah are asking for the remedy. They asked Jonah the remedy for the calming of the sea. The lots have been pointed out. He's answered some questions. The water has become more tempestuous, more powerful. The ship is more um, being battered more with the waves. It's already busting apart. These guys, again, they're freaking out. And so in 11, they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, and the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Wow. The rebellious prophet here, Jonah, informs them clearly what the remedy is. He was ready to die for his disobedience because he hated the Ninevites. Greater Than his openness to be open for the love of God. Wow. Who's this guy? He's a prophet of God. Now, he didn't mind prophesying for Israel, even though Israel was idolatrous, that God was going to give them back some territory from the Assyrians. But but he does mind to preach to the Ninevites that they might repent. He prays that God kills him later on in chapter 4, verse 3. Elijah prayed that God would kill him also, but the God didn't. Interesting, he, he prays that God killed but then when he's thrown into the sea, he doesn't want to die. <laughs> Notice that um, he didn't try to take his life. Suicide should never be um, even a thought in the Christian's mind. There's five people who have committed suicide in Scripture. None of them are walking with God. You have Ahithophel. You have um, Saul and his armor bearer. That's three. And you have Judas Iscariot. That's four. And you have a pagan king. That's five. I wouldn't want to be any one of them. That's why we get saved. So we can live abundantly. Our lives not our own. It belongs to God. He's the one that determines when I breathe my last. Until then, I am his example. I am his instrument. I am his vessel. I live for his glory. In whatever situation, do we not pledge in marriage for better or for worse in sickness and health? And wealth and in poverty? <laughs> for better or for worse? Are we not married to the Lord Jesus Christ? It's the same thing. And yet, today, suicide is softened for the believer. I would not give you any hope in suicide if you claim to be a Christian. None whatsoever, because all five examples say, don't go there. And I think pastors are too soft on it. And today, with all the junk that goes on, with the drugs and the shrinks and everything else, crazy. So I I would never give you any sense of approval or hope because all five examples say no. Absolutely not. And so, here... Jonah's ready to go. Now, in verse 13, 14, we see the reluctance of these mariners. Nevertheless, the men rode harder to return um, to the land. So they weren't too far off. They still can make their way back. But they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. So here you have to, the heathen are acting more like Christians. And the Christian, in this Old Testament sense, is acting more like a heathen. (laughs) And therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life. And do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleases you. And so... They want to be absolved of any blame. They're doing their best. They want to get to shore, but God's in the storm. God is not allowing it. God is pursuing the prophet, but God is also pursuing the sailors to be saved. He's working on both ends through the same storm. God can be working on you through what He's allowing you to go through, and then He's working on others who are praying for you. And then He's working all at the same time on those who are looking unto you who don't know God. And He can use the same thing for a hundred different situations for His glory. Nothing's impossible for God. When you and I think that we can figure God out and we have them all wired and we can just kind of, oh, yeah, he does this, he does that. And, you know, be careful that you don't think you're the Bible answer man. (laughs) And your word is final. Now, wherever the word is final, it's final. But be careful that you don't have the ways of God figured out. Very, very dangerous. And so in verse 15 down to 16, the disobedient Jonah is disciplined. He says, So they picked up Jonah and they threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. And so the prophet Jonah cast into the sea. The result was the second divine miracle. The storm and the sea's raging seas. The water became like glass. The seamen, in verse 16, feared the Lord exceedingly now. They feared first the storm, then exceedingly, and now they fear the Lord exceedingly. They're parallel. Their perspective is getting different. They're understanding. They feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered sacrifice. They made a vow, and they prayed to him. Yahweh. All capital letters. The tetragrammaton is called Y-H-W-H, no vowels. It comes from the verb to be, from I am that I am, back in Exodus. And so their conversion was true when they were saved, notice. That's when they worshiped and vowed to the Lord, once they were saved. This wasn't a, a, a 9 one conversion. This wasn't a jail conversion. The tempest was over. They saw the miracle of God. They saw that God was more powerful than their gods. And they accepted him. You see, the message is more important than the man, isn't it? God honors his word above his name. And so in verse 17... That really should be the first verse of chapter 2. It's a better division. Again, chapter and verse division is not by the um, divine um, inspiration of the Spirit. It's made by men. And, and for the most part, most divisions are pretty good. But sometimes they can be adjusted by a verse, a few with a whole section. This is one of those um, situations. So... The merciful discipline of God to the disobedient prophet we have here in verse 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now we looked at this whole chapter this morning in depth. We're not going to belabor the same stuff uh, in extent. But here again, um, the Lord prepared this fish to swallow Jonah to keep him from drowning. And is it any difficult for God to control this fish and direct this fish than it was for him to speak through the donkey of Balaam? No. Is it more difficult for God to uh, have his son born uh, through a miraculous intervention of the Holy Spirit that a virgin would bear a child than for him to create from nothing bara in the hebrew in chapter 1 of genesis no nothing's impossible nothing is hard for god the only thing that's hard on our side is it's hard for us to believe some of the things that god says about himself now when men talk about themselves all the time that's narcissistic when god speaks about himself that's absolute truth And he just wants us to believe it. And so he prepared this great fish, this large fish, translated by some sea monster, uh, but it never recorded as a whale. God will also prepare a, 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 a palm, a worm, an east wind in chapter 4, verse 6 through 8. So there's many miracles that are in the book of Jonah. And the greatest miracle, as I've told you before, is the salvation of the Ninevites. Now, it could have been a sperm whale, which have up to eight feet in diameter in their throats. In 1891, a sailor was swallowed, and the next day they uh, opened the whale, and he was alive. Uh, And there are other accounts, uh, so we know that that is. So the miracle, I said this morning, is not that... Jonah was in the whale well for three days and lived. The miracle is that God directed and used the vehicle of the animal. And controlled the animal. Because we see men have lived. Now, it's pretty risky. There are only a few, but it's proven that it's possible. Three days and three nights, that's a long time. That's like being in a parking structure and there's an earthquake and they collapse and you're trapped between the trusses and you're there just that far from there and you've got all this weight above you and you have to wait there for three days and three nights as they're searching? You go crazy. The heat, the humidity, the smell. I didn't even mention this morning. I mean... It's like God saying, "Okay, you don't want to go to Nineveh? Let me take you on a ride." <laughs> hmm. Jonah again, three days, three nights. Jesus picks it up in Matthew twelve thirty-nine through forty-one, Luke eleven twenty-nine through thirty-two. As Jonah spent three days and three nights in the heart, uh, in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So. Jonah is the type, Jesus Christ is the anti-type, and that's how you understand the true type. It's always prophetic going forward, and the fulfillment is pointed out in the New Testament. The Old Testament is prophetic and progressive. The New Testament is the fulfillment. So the New Testament is the commentary on the old. Always, never the reverse. Modern critics uh, reject this second chapter. Um, They think it's completely out of setting, out of line, because they deny miracles. But yet, um, Jesus uh, affirms it to be so. Uh, It's a psalm of praise, adoration, thanksgiving of his deliverance from the belly of the great fish. And... um, Jesus makes this very, very clear. Now, it says in verse 1 Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. So, the confession and repentance and forgiveness of Jonah comes in these first three verses. The setting for his prayer is the belly or the stomach of this large fish, three times the word belly is used so that you understand that he literally was there. Um, He couldn't run anywhere. Jonah prayed as a statement of fact, implying confession and repentance. It's all there. Um, In verse 2, he says, and he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. And so God accepted the prayer of Jonah. Jonah is getting right with God here. If I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me, Psalm 66, 18. God's hand is not short that he cannot save. Neither is his, his, his arm heavy that he cannot, or his ear heavy that he cannot hear. But your sins have separated from God, and he cannot hear. And the next verse says, and he turns his back on us. 1 John two one, my little children, I write these things that you do not practice sin. And if you do, you have Jesus Christ the righteous, a Lord for your defense to get right. And so any person who believes they can live in sin and still have a relationship with God is totally unbiblical. There is no such thing. Any more than you believe that your son or daughter could be in a right relationship with you while they're out stealing or being immoral and that they're going to come home and tell you about it, and you're going to be happy about it, and they're going to be your buddies. There's no way. And so this is the place where Jonah started reflecting. He's up against the wall, he's got nowhere to go, and sometimes God will put us in places and in ways that we have nowhere to go but to him. Notice in verse 3, he says, For you cast me into the deep, acknowledging God as the one, even though the sailors were the ones that physically tossed him over, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me. All your billows and your waves passed over me. And so the miserable state in the belly of the fish, He acknowledged here in verse 4. I'm sorry, verse 3. That God was disciplining him. You cast me into the sea. Your billows, your waves passed over me. It was the hand of God. That he was permitting this. In verse 4, the acknowledgement of being restored in fellowship is very, very clear. He says, then I said... And he's reflecting back, as I said this morning, he isn't writing it inside the belly. He's after he's delivered, he writes the book. Then I said, I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. So I was out of line with you. I've made myself right. You've accepted me. And now I'm looking forward to just worshiping you. The temple is that. He's, this is not talking about the temple in heaven. He's. You know, and there's no way he's going to know which side the temple is, which way he's he's all, all disoriented and everything. I am sure. But then in verse five and six, he gives us the miserable state in the belly of the fish. He says, "The waters surround me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me, and weeds were wrapped around my head. I went up, I went down to the moorings of the mountains and the earth." With its bars closed behind me forever, yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. And so, here again, the prophet overwhelmed, even to the despair of his soul. The word Nefesh speaks of his, not his physical being, but who he really is as a person. You, the comparisons, the New Testament in my spirit, the real me, who I really am. And the constant water coming in. You can imagine as that sea monster, shark or whale or whatever it was, going up and down and opening that mouth and the water coming in and seaweed coming in and, you know, just as dark and it's smacking him in the head and he tries to grab some and it goes down and it's hot, it's humid, it's stinky and he's praying to God and he's on his back, he's on his head, he's just all over the place. It's like being in a washing machine. All tangled up. In verse... Sixth notice, he was very aware of the deep descent of the fish. Just as you're aware when you get in an elevator, whether you're going up or down. Now, when you increase the velocity, the direction you're going, you also get the G-forces that come with it. Jonah spoke of mountains. How did he know that? Did he peek out the mouth? Did he come out this porthole on top? Things that the men of God revealed by God's revelation before it was possible. Isaiah says that God created the world and then he had the nerve to hang it on nothing and then spin it in a thousand miles an hour. How did you know it hung on nothing? When, for so many hundreds of years, even thousands, people believed it was square and it was on top of his back and the elephant and tortoise and everything else. Maybe I'm speaking Greek, but do they even teach those lies anymore in school? I mean, you know. But here again, Jonah is being dealt with in a severe way with, by God. And it's brought him to a breaking point. Now he's not totally convinced in heart, but he's moving forward. He's learning. He's being disciplined. God is preparing him. The earth closed behind him bars, figurative language of going beyond a certain point where there's no turning back, and I'm dead. The door's closing. You see some of those programs, you know, in jail, you know, they walk them in and then and once they enter in, they poof, slam the door, the cell door. That's it. You're in. No going out. Yet God had other things. He then suddenly was delivered. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Yahweh, my God. You see? And that's sometimes what God does to us. We think that we're never going to make it. We think, man, I'm done. What is God doing? And, And God says, just hang tight. Just walk with me. Just obey me. Just keep your eyes on me. Don't get distracted. God is the one who's delivering him. So Jonah compared this to coming up. But it was God who brought him up and yet God was using the animal, right? My Lord, my God. He wasn't praising the animal. Jonah didn't become a a whale or shark worshiper. He worshipped God. He didn't worship creation. Today it is an insult to the creator as men and women worship the creation more than the creator which is blessed and evermore where they will demand hardship, greater expense on people because of the environment. Now, let me tell you, for those of you that aren't as old as I am, that when I grew up in the Sangiro Valley, the Sangiro Valley was not as clean in air as it is today. Okay? And yet, when I grew up, we played, we ran, we drank out of the holes, we slept in rooms with asbestos, lead paint, you name it. I think the first thing you should do when you get your kid old enough to walk is take him down to um, the nearest mall and... Have him stick his tongue out and have him get some immunity on him on those automatic steps that are going up. Everybody has their kids so clean today, their body can't defend themselves. Have them eat little dirt once in a while. I always ask my grandson, I said, did you, um, did you wash your hands? He goes, yes. I said, lick them. And yet, it's a worship of creation. It's an attack against the Creator. It's incredible what goes on today. Verse 7. He says, When my soul fainted within me, I remember the Lord, and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. And so... The condition of Jonah was life-threatening throughout the three days, constantly. His soul fainted every time that the experience of distress and hopelessness came over him. And yet, Jonah was completely dependent on the Lord. He's learning. Verse 8 and 9, the commitment of Jonah towards God is given. He says, those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed salvation is of the Lord. The prophet distinguishes himself from the Gentiles here once again. He had it bad. The verse almost seems out of place, as I said this morning, yet it's very relevant because he still has in mind the Assyrians, the pagans, who were idolaters. He's a Jew. He worships God. He knows what he worships. He's of the covenant of God. He worships the Creator, the covenant of God, Yahweh. And yet Israel was to serve as an instrument to bring people into the kingdom of God as proselytes. Yet Israel took that badge as a badge of elitism, rather than instruments to bring people to God. And the church is now to go out. So the Old Testament is centripetal. The nations were to come into Israel. The church is centrifugal. We go out to the nations. There's the big difference. And so, God knew the heart of Jonah, his reluctance, but he wasn't fooling God, nor was God ignorant of it. It's just that God is very patient, and he knows the end from the beginning, and he knows how to deal with us individually and differently, and he doesn't violate his word, and he deals with the individual. The declaration by Jonah was an absolute biblical truth about idolatry here. It's empty. It's false, it's vain. Psalm 115, they have eyes they can't see, they have hands they can't handle, they have feet they can't walk. And those that worship them become just like them, insensate, blind to the things of God, deaf to the things of God, and paralyzed to the ways of God. Paul says that those that worship idols worship demons in 1 Corinthians ten twenty. Now, I say this specifically because I was a Roman Catholic. I was raised, born a Roman Catholic. And the Catholic Church is full of idolatry. Now, the Catholic Church is making leaping, leaping advances into the Christian community. The whole movement of the positive confession of Copeland, Hagen, and Price have committed themselves to this new Pope. Go on, on YouTube and pick it up. And that they're going back to the Mother Church. There's such a great apostasy from within Protestantism to Catholicism. There is a very aggressive advance by the Catholic Church. Much of the music that is going into the emerging churches is Catholic-oriented by Catholic converts who believe in Mary as an intercessor who believe in the Pope's infallibility, who believe that the Catholic Church is the vicar of Christ. That is blasphemous. And idolatry is the heart of Catholicism. God abhors it. Read Revelation 17 and 18 to see what is going to be done to it, both commercial and religious Babylon. He's going to destroy it. Now, the consequences of practicing idolatry is that a person forsakes his own mercy. Mercy less than we deserve. Grace is what we don't deserve. Law is exactly what we deserve. And the word here is hesed, as I said this morning. is a covenant word. Loving kindness for God to do good and, 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 and to be for us and to be faithful. It's a great word. The prophet Jonah described his devotion and worship to God. And there in verse 9, sacrifice, fellowship by forgiveness. Thanksgiving, appreciation for his deliverance. Vow, dedication to go to Nineveh perhaps, but not wholeheartedly. (laughs) As we'll see when we get there. And salvation, revelation of the covenant God. His deliverance. No one can be saved except by God. And now he speaks only through his son. No one else. God who at different times and in diverse manner spoken times past to the fathers has in these last days spoken to us through his dear son. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 and 2. He is it. No one else. He does not speak through Mary. He does not speak through Peter. He does not speak through the Pope. He does not speak through anybody. He doesn't even speak through me. I just teach the word of God what's here. But he only speaks through his son. No one else. And so, in verse 10, we have the other bookend. Verse 17 is the first, and verse 10 is the second. It's a psalm sandwich through these two bookends. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah unto dry land. The response of God to the prayer of Jonah God communicated with this gigantic fish. God, therefore, took Jonah at his word. He knew that Jonah's heart was not wholeheartedly turned. But he's under construction. God was going to give Jonah a second chance. Chapter 3, verse 1. The gigantic fish obeyed God and he burps Jonah up on dry land thrusts him he lands on the sand he hurled him there most likely near Joppa they weren't too far they were trying to get to the shore and then the call will come again he has learned great lessons he has many more to learn he is yellowish white he probably has sea legs under him he stinks horrendously he's ball headed and he's ready to go To Nineveh. Now it could have been much easier. So much easier. But sometimes. Some of us. Just. Need to take the long way around. You know it was supposed to take only about 11 days to get through the wilderness. They were there for 40 years. Why? They didn't have to. Why, Jonah? This was unnecessary. Self-will. God is so merciful, though. God's going to give him another chance. That's the kind of God we serve. Father, thank you for your grace, your goodness. We love you. We thank you. We pray, Lord, you continue to just direct our lives as we study your word as we see your goodness towards us lord and so father we do thank you pray for anybody that's here lord doesn't know you you would deal with their hearts and father you would just allow them to see how much you love them and how much you want to forgive them and just transform their lives as you're praying if you're here tonight if you don't know jesus christ as your lord and savior god has brought you here to be saved Turn from your sin. He alone can do it. No amount of works. You can't undo anything. You can't redo anything. You can't buy your way to heaven. All you can do is admit your sinfulness and cast yourself upon the grace and the mercy of God. And he says he will save you and forgive you and make you whiter than snow. If this is your decision, maybe you're over the internet or here. This is your prayer to him. I don't have altar calls because it doesn't really matter to me. If you're sincere, then God will save you right where you sit. I am not against them, I just don't do them. (laughs) I do sit-down altar calls. This is between you and God. If you're sincere, you will never be the same You play games and you'll be as lost when you leave here as you were when you came in. But that's your decision. And this way, God is the one that gets the glory. No one else. And so if you want to be born again, this is your prayer. You can pray to the Lord right now. Father, thank you for saving me. Forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you. As my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.